The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times at this time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people. When those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the beast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff, porn, and pedo forms begin to get top billing. Rise up, when famine claims millions. When Good evening and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. I do believe we have uh, Max on the line. Max, give me just a moment. We're not hearing you. I think that's on my end. All right, Max. Sorry about that. Go ahead, sir. Peace, brother. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. All right. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas, with new abolitionists and actionists Johanna Elia and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is March 16, 2016. Tonight's guest is Dimitri Cherney out of Charleston, South Carolina. Dimitri is a new abolitionist running for a congressional seat on the 1st Congressional District of Low Country, South Carolina, removing the 13th Amendment Exception Clause from the U.S. Constitution and ending prison for profit are high priorities for this particular candidate. We'll be speaking with him shortly. A slave rebellion has occurred in Alabama's Holman Prison, resulting in several stabbings, including the warden, with as many as 70 incarcerated men barricaded in at one point, the series of events covered several days. We'll tell you what we know about that and more. At the local level, a judge in East Point, Detroit, has been ordered to stop jailing poor defendants simply for failing to pay court fines and fees. A Macomb County Circuit Court judge said he would have to halt his pay or stay sentencing practices. At the federal level, the Department of Justice called on state judges across the country to root out unconstitutional policies that have locked poor people in a cycle of fines, debts, and jail. The Justice Department's top civil rights prosecutor, Vanita Gupta, warned against operating courthouses as for-profit ventures. We've made a valiant effort as abolitionists to influence popular culture. Some of the fruits are emerging. Tonight, we do a quick review on two new series, ground, two new groundbreaking series to emerge, Underground and 60 Days In. We'll give you the details shortly. Sarah Palin's racist remarks, Bernie's loss, and Trump's threats of riots. If time's allowed, we'll cover all of that, including a story that shows how Obama's clemency program is failing. This week's writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Ricky Jackson, who was falsely accused and incarcerated for 39 years, some of it on death row. He recently got to ask a question of Senator Clinton in Ohio. Brother Jackson was released in 2015 and recently awarded a $1 million settlement. 
our abolitionist in profile tonight is Miller Granson, who taught hundreds of slaves to read and write with Midnight School. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. We invite you to join the conversation by calling us at one 641 extension 549-032-POUND. Just press star six and one to queue up from the conference line. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's up, Miss Scotty? Hey, greetings to you, Max. Excited about uh, tonight's uh, program. And do just want to let you know, uh, Johanan is with us uh, right now. As he said, he said that he would leave and work so that he can make it on time. (laughs) You know, today I was supposed to get off of the cell phone and go back to using a microphone with my internet on. But they came to fix it, and no sooner than they fixed it and left, then it broke down. So I I didn't have no internet. (laughs) Sorry to hear that. Sorry to hear that, man. Um, But you asked me how I'm doing. As I always say, I'm surviving, Max. Might be surviving a little bit better than some of our other, you know, people out there. So, uh, but I am excited again to uh, be able to talk to, for the first time, um, you know, this abolitionist candidate uh, that's coming on to speak with us. You know, um, when we started this program, how many years ago? Four, five years ago? Uh, how many abolitionist candidates, I mean, people who were openly running as abolitionists, how many were running for office back then? To the best of my knowledge, there were none uh, prior, not none after John Quincy Adams in 1848. And then we, a few years later, had the opportunity to talk to Reverend uh, uh, Maju. Uh, am I saying that right? Uh, Omoja Ajabu. Ajabu, yeah who was running as an abolitionist candidate for Congress out of Indianapolis, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And so now this year we can point to at least five people across the United States seeking political office with abolition as part of their platform. So I'm excited, man. I'm excited. I'm still hopeful. Um, you know, whole lot of work to do, but at least we can we can point, like you said, to where you know we are as abolitionists. Not talking about just you, me, and Johanna, but all the other abolitionists out there. You know how we have changed the narrative or influenced, you know, uh, the language that's being used. Yeah, I saw that so clearly during the Democratic town hall meeting recently where an abolitionist out of Ohio actually said it right to Hillary Clinton's face on national television that this is what people are calling modern-day slavery. And Hillary Clinton actually agreed with her. She said, your description of it is correct. And then started mumbling on and on and on. But, you know, we know what Hillary has done. Nonetheless, she had to answer to that, and that was amazing. She even started giving us the, uh, she's going to end private prisons uh, spiel, you know? Yeah, yeah. But we know she can't be trusted. Like um, like uh, Brother Dave was just talking about uh, on Tando Radio Show prior to us coming on, is that, you know, these liars aren't easy, are easy to spot if you do your research, if you pay attention. To what not only what's being said, but what has been done. And so, you know, uh, I don't even want to get started on that evil, uh, unindicted criminal, Hillary Clinton. I did a video called Hillary is a Fracking Liar. And you should check it out. It's available at New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, just take a look at it. It's only a couple minutes long, but you get to see exactly how she responded to this question. 
Um, and it's an interesting video, nonetheless. Johanna, what's going on there, brother? Man, just good to be here with you all. Uh, good to be here with the with the uh, abolitionists. <clears throat> I know a lot of folks look forward to uh, to us coming on week to week. So, I mean, I've I've really been missing over these last several months. You all have been patient with me coming in whenever I could get in. But you know, when you call me today, Max, you know, sometimes you just gotta lay it down. Like, all right, well, let me be sure that I'm in the place just in case Max might not be able to make it. I don't want to leave Scotty hanging. I mean, y'all been carrying right, me. Right. So. Just good to be here and uh, be on time <laughs> to get in oh, the, get you, a, the full two hours in, man. Definitely. You know, I had to handwrite that whole intro because I didn't have the, the access to the internet. I had to use the phone and visually look and, and handwrite the whole thing, you know? Old school. Yeah, old school. <laughs> well, type it. Let's put it like that. <laughs> type it. No more copy and paste. I but yeah, you. man, it's, it's good to be here to be able to give this message out to people and to speak uh, indeed with Brother Cherney, I've had a couple of uh, workshops I've done out of Charleston, and he's attended a couple of them, and uh, he, he sees the truth of what's going on. Really, that's all it takes. Is in 20 minutes, you can explain it to somebody if they're just willing to listen, you know, and being re receptive of the message. So there's plenty of proof. I've learned how to uh, – What about my, right now, I have a superstar sitting in the office with me, Tavis Brunson, and earlier today, I was – talking to the cable guy, and the cable guy is now an abolitionist. And Travis Brunson is like, man, you got some great elevator conversation. <laughs> Your elevator game is up there. Yeah. All I need is a couple of minutes. That's all anybody needs. It ain't that hard to explain. Well, the key thing you said was willing to listen. You know, because as I was right. talking to a member of the Black Talk Radio Network family earlier today, Sister Cece, um, and they host Blacks in Business Radio on Thursday nights. But she was telling me, uh, sharing a story with me. She was in the grocery store and she saw this black woman uh, in her 60s, almost 70, uh, wearing all this uh, Hillary Clinton paraphernalia and really talking up Hillary Clinton and, and, and all of that. And says she, you know, oh, you're voting for Hillary Clinton. Well, let me tell you about her connections to the private prison industry. Uh, did you know about this? Know about that? And then she was also saying, you know, there is also a new movement for a new black voting block called I am one of the million dot com. This woman said, I ain't trying to learn nothing. I ain't trying to hear nothing now. And, and, and then she said, OK, you know, left it at that and left the woman alone. So there are a lot of people out there who won't even listen. They ain't trying to learn. But then so that's why you have to, you know. Uh, move on to more fertile ground to borrow, you know, some uh, lines from uh, the Bible. You know, they talk about seed falling on fertile ground, falling on thorny ground and falling on barren ground. You got to recognize when you're dealing with barren and thorny ground and then just move on. But again, you know, when you're saying that all you have to do is listen, there are some people who ain't even trying to listen and learn a thing, man. They want to be stuck in this current paradigm. Well, I found in my conversation with people across the country that uh, a lot of people have made decisions about this. You know, they've come to conclusions, lifelong conclusions that have become foundations of what they believe in. And when we come about telling them that slavery has never ended, it is being practiced on a scale that is comparable to, if not exceeding that of the transatlantic slave trade, it's just hard for them to, to just immediately accept that. You have to be willing to listen to the argument. Because that's all it takes is just to take a couple minutes, sit back and say, okay, tell me what you got to say or show me what you need me to see. 
but most people have made these decisions already. And like the brother I spoke to today, you know, he was telling me what he knows and what he knows is limited. This is something that's only been around for 45 years. The first private prison didn't start until Reagan. Uh, the Clintons came along and perfected it. The IPO of the GEO group, formerly known as Wackenhut, didn't happen until 1994. So to see this explosion of 90% and 500% increase in prison population is not something that we saw in the 70s or the 60s. You know, this is a new phenomenon, at least in this way. The willingness to listen, definitely. Um, I find myself <clears throat> just trying to, you know, figure out what is, what is, um, you know, kind of my, my purpose is to keep going down this road. You know, we started out with this and then I got into abolitionist daily, uh, got back into full time, you know, outside of the home work world and kind of changed everything and find myself competing in that space. And then, you know, kind of forgetting sometimes being so competitive there, like, where are we winning it? You know, and so Max and I had a chance to talk last night. And it was good to uh, to kind of rehash and be reminded of, you know, the things like we start off the program talking about having five candidates that are running on abolitionist platforms at this point, having the different legislations that have been, uh, you know, brought to pass, even with, you know, the, the presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders, bringing out the, the uh, uh, justice is not for sale, bringing out the uh, the ban to a uh, private prison. So, you know, these kind of things are, are in the conversation and in the mainstream uh, media. Now we're seeing people stand up in the audience at town halls, like you said, and, and, and call modern uh, slavery, uh, you know, said that out into the space. So, you know, I really have to uh, tip my hat to both of you. Um, you know, you two are, are two people that definitely I know, you know, run laps around me just with the work ethic and, and forever, you know, putting in that putting in the effort to, to get this word out here. So. You know, kudos to you, and it's, it's definitely good to uh, to just kind of remind ourselves of how prevalent the slavery, modern day slavery message is is becoming out here in this society. Well, one thing I count on, and I know for sure, freedom happens. Whether you want it to or not, freedom is going to happen. You can mm-hmm. repress it for as long as you think you can, but it's going to bubble up and happen over and over again. Isn't that what this whole nation was built on? That the uh, founding fathers were afraid of the enslavement of the kings of, of England and Spain and all of those different characters. Yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> that's what they say, right? <laughs> well, um, yeah, man, and I, I'm very happy to hear about all of these candidates. I'm also happy about the divestment programs. For 2015, the divestment programs were the bomb. Like all across the country, college students and university students were challenging their uh, faculty to take the money that they have invested into private prison construction and remove that because it's a conflict of interest when a higher uh, a learning institution is making money on based on partially how many of your students go to prison. And we've seen those successes happen one after the other. That was is wonderful. No doubt, no doubt. Hey, fellas, uh, what time are we supposed to be joined by our guests, and will be calling the studio line or the conference line? Uh, I, I sent them the conference line and a message at 8.20, but my internet went down today, so I haven't been able to send him a reminder, but I did tag him on the post a little while ago, so I'm pretty sure he should know about it, but okay. I told him 8.20, and okay. I gave him the uh, the conference call number. Okay, okay. So it's 8, 8.15, 8.15. So five minutes, uh, I'll check the uh, conference line or we'll look to bring them in. Okay. 
Um, so, um, I mean, we got some important stories to report tonight, man. It's, it's not that the other nights aren't information packed, but I really um, am looking at what's going on in Alabama now with that uprising and, um, you know, the list of demands that have been issued by those affected and uh, them demanding that, you know, basically their human rights be uh, respected. So I know it's not time to get to that, but. You know, I haven't seen that's been going on since Friday night and I have not Max, seen one mainstream article about it. I haven't seen one television uh, segment about it. And so, you know, that's just really sad, man. That goes to show you there is a concerted effort to keep this information from the people. I had kind of a, a, a mind changing moment regarding the Alabama circumstances, you know, and I'm always trying to change my mind because I've been programmed from birth like everybody else. And it's going to be a lifelong thing to continue to recreate myself. So it dawned on me that we have really been looking at this thing in comparison to the 1800s and all the different uh, parallels that occur, like our rider of the 21st century underground railroad. And we see these people who are being freed on record levels as an underground railroad. They don't have a north to go to, but they're getting free from bondage. And that is certainly uh, uh, one thing that we keep track of. Also, we compare the police to the slave catchers. Um, you know, their roots come from slave catchers, and uh, they still practice much of the same tactics today. But, uh, Max, along those lines, if I could just share this real quickly. Um, and, and, you know, I'm starting to get to the point to where I don't care if I step on toes. I try to be sensitive because I know a lot of people are very, very confused about the system and how it works and whatnot. But, you know, we do we do talk a lot about, and it's true, it is not just, you know, false propaganda. It's propaganda, uh, which means that we're just producing media to uh, uh, share our point of view with you. But about the cops being slave catchers and whatnot. But here is a thing that can damage the abolitionist movement is that story of that Princeton professor who was pulled over while speeding. Uh, yes, she's black, was pulled over um, and found that she had a ticket that was a couple of years old and there was a warrant for her arrest. And so they arrested her and she took to Facebook and painted this story like, you know, she she uh, she didn't deny speeding, but she painted this story like she was just treated like Sandra Bland. So then when the video comes out, I see these two cops treating her with the utmost respect, being courteous and, you know, just explaining everything to her. And, and, and so then when you tell lies like that, you know, and, you know, it's enough real instances of police brutality, corruption, terrorism for us to, to point at as part of modern day slavery and human trafficking. Then for you to then turn around and lie about a such such a, a instant happening, and then all these people put their time, their energy, their passion behind getting you justice, and then we see the video come out, and then we all got egg on our faces. You are not helping the movement that way. You are hindering the movement that way because now you're taking attention away from real cases of police brutality. So I, I just want to take the opportunity to say that. You know, I don't even claim people like that. I just don't claim them. You know, it's really just that simple. Because it, it happens on every 
from, from both ends of the spectrum of this thing. We just saw this recently where the cops tried to frame Black Lives Matter people for shooting them. One cop killed himself and tried to make it look like black people killed him. Right, they right. They on that side in extremes, too. Right. And I don't claim them either. They are not part of team abolitionist movement. Right. It's just very important to maintain our credibility and and you know because once you lose credibility you know then why would anyone listen to what you have to say and you end up not only hurting yourself but you hurt you you hurt the credibility of the wider movement well i agree with you but i do know that the moment we started speaking about abolitionism a lot of credibility went out the window because that was crazy talk you know back when we started it was crazy talk and uh, now it's no longer crazy talk. Now we got presidents doing crazy talk uh, and congressmen doing crazy talk. So it's not crazy talk anymore. But we were willing to step out on a limb and put our uh, reputations on the line for this. And, and that's what I was saying about changing your mind and growing and learning more so you can see this in a different way with the uprisings in Alabama's prisons. Those are literally slave rebellions. They're slave rebellions is what they are because we're calling these people slaves, right? We're saying that they're in there and they're being uh, the price of them being in there is X amount of dollars that the, these uh, prisons are making to keep them there. They're working them for free, pennies on a dollar for uh, companies like Verizon, for instance, or McDonald's or Burger King or whatever the hell it is they may be working for, Walmarts. So this is literally a slave rebellion, which is why you're not seeing it on the media. It's the thing that uh, the America's authorities have feared the most since the beginning of this country now if this was just and i do see we got johanna back and i do see uh the caller from the 843 area code that may be our guest um but let me just say this about that uh max if this was just prisoner on prisoner violence you know having to do with whatever crimes are being committed because we know that a lot of people get raped in prison that's why men are the most raped gender uh, in this country, okay? Uh, but if it was something like that, then I suspect it would be all over the news. But since these guys have issued a list of demands pointing out the uh, uh, inhumane conditions that they're living in, oh, so now it's not going to be mainstream news. So let's go well, ahead and uh, check this caller, Max. I don't want to keep... Our listener, I mean, excuse me, our planned guest waiting, and um, we will forego the 8.30 break, and we'll just take our first break at the top of the hour. Oh, that sounds good. That sounds good. Is that you, uh, Brother Dimitri Cherney? Hey, Max. How you doing? <laughs> Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. I'm here with Scotty Reed and Johanna Elia. It's good to have you here, man. Uh, you, you, I don't know if you heard us talking prior to you coming on or not. Yep. Yeah, I've been, I've been listening here. Yeah, yeah. You, you know how we are. We're very passionate about freedom, uh, as we expect many other people should be. And uh, trying to get the details of what exactly we're dealing with out into the masses. Um, I'm proud to know you, brother. Uh, you put it on your website. You know, it's, it's so easy to do that. Remove the 13th Amendment exception clause. <laughs> it's so easy to, eat, to, to just say it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, you know, regarding passion, Max, I, I think uh, all of us that are out here fighting the good fight, that's that's the thing that we all have in common. Uh, and, you know, when I when I met you last year, I guess it was up in Columbia when we were taking that flag down. 
July fourth, uh, the day Muhaddin was arrested uh, over there, kidnapped, yeah. literally. Yep. Yeah, that's right. And then you came down to Charleston after that, and, and you know you got you got me interested in our little talks up in Columbia, but then you did your your spiel, and it's like you said, <laughs> twenty minutes, and I was an abolitionist, and I, I honestly think that um, anybody in America, anybody in the world, would would be the same way. I was completely shocked when when you pointed out that exception clause in the 13th Amendment. I, I was like, well, how, how on earth did this happen? How did we, how did they get away with that? And none of us knew about it other than you. So, yeah, it's so easy to become an abolitionist, just getting the word out there. Right, right. You know, we get the uh, message that the only thing we can do about the issues of mass incarceration and everything that surrounds that, including prison for profit and policing for profit and so on and so forth, the only thing we can do about it is reform. No one ever mentions the word abolition because there are some things that are crimes and they don't need to be fixed. They need to be ended, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the way I'm looking at it now, now that I'm I'm doing this run for Congress, um, you know, we should go back into the past and fix the things that we... We screwed up, and boy, that's a big one right there. Let's just do that first, you know, take out that exception clause and make it so slavery is ended in the United States, uh, and, and you just can't do it legally anymore, and then start picking up everything else, all the school-to-prison pipeline and everything else. You know, I was, I was just at a, um, a little uh, panel discussion here in, in Charleston, and they had the three superintendents of the local school. Uh, school districts here, Charleston, Dorchester, and Berkeley counties, and uh, great, great discussion. I was, I was very impressed with these people, but one of the, the facts that the Charleston County uh, School District uh, Superintendent, uh, Postlewaite, uh, she just started kind of um, under a little fire, but uh, I, was, I was very impressed with her today. But one of the facts that she said was that right now, every year, they hand out uh, the equivalent of about 81 student years of suspension, and 80% or so of those student years of suspension are going to black kids. And so that's that's where the whole school-to-prison pipeline is starting. Now, kids are getting suspended and then arrested for crap that, you know, when we were kids, you go and you see the principal, and, uh, and that's about it. But uh, there's some... We got a, we got an insidious system here that starts at a very young age, and we really got to fix all this stuff. Right. You, you for example, uh, would be what we saw in Columbia, South Carolina, at Springvale uh, High School, oh, yeah. uh, where the young girl, simply because she wouldn't get up and go at that moment that this officer commanded her to, was choked and thrown across the room, and then she faced arrest after that. And the girl who protested faced arrest. Again, as you just said, these are some things that when, you know, certain people were growing up, they didn't have to deal with this. The principal or the teachers could handle this. These weren't violent children that they were dealing with here in 2015, nor was it back then when you were a child, you know? They didn't require arrest. When you you explained it to me that that slavery still exists, and then if you look at the for-profit prisons, you gotta, you you can't help but think that Maybe there is some incentive program, a very twisted incentive program that, that feeds all the way down, uh, clearly through the judicial system, um, but feeds all the way down even to, into the schools, uh, 
to give people incentive to keep the prisons full. And it's it just it makes me sick. Well, there's no doubt that that actually happens. It has happened in Mississippi with an entire county was on the payroll for a private prison. And it also happened in Pennsylvania with the Kids for Cash program, where the judge was working directly with the private prison and taking yeah. these juvenile delinquents from school and sending them straight to this juvie prison. Yeah, yeah, I heard so the same thing. Yeah, these things happen on a regular basis. I'm just glad that you know it and you're trying to get into Congress. And I hope you make this uh, position so you can carry this message with you to the rest of your fellow congressmen and senators so they can start questioning this, start looking at it. I mean, we have to realize that, that back in 1865, when slavery supposedly ended, it was a system that was incorporated in every single aspect of our lives. You just don't rip that thing out and think it's gone forever. If you allow one single seed, it's going to grow back. And what we did was plant those seeds with the exception clause for prisoners. And we immediately went to convict leasing and then convict leasing to Unicorn and Unicorn to what we have today with uh, everywhere you look, there's prisoners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Max, um, I, th- I think I, I told you, but I'll, I'll tell your listeners today, but um you know, we're, I'm, I'm running for Congress now and people see me walking around and I'm always wearing a suit and I look like, people say, you look like money. But um, I, I think I told you back in 2010, I was homeless. Homeless, and yes. I, I, I was a victim of the Great Recession and I lived out of my car for a couple of months and I slept on my nephew's couch for the three months. And uh, I eventually started driving big rigs all, all, around, the, all around the country. While I was doing that, I, I studied economics and history, and uh, none, of the stu- none of the history I studied told me anything about uh, the exception clause in the 13th uh, Amendment. But one of the things that I, that I realized is that when we look back on, on legislation that has helped the average American uh, to better their lives, improve our lives, it always only happens after a, a revolution, an uprising. Huge demonstrations. You need to get something like I think I read a study about this some years ago. I think it was like you have to have six percent of the population actively involved before everybody else kind of wakes up and goes along with it. Uh, but if if not, then the people that are in charge are really good at just incrementally taking away everybody else's rights and doing things that just favor them. And I think that's exactly what has happened with the the exception clause in the 13th Amendment. You know, they left that sneaky little thing in there, and it's just gotten more and more insidious over the past 150 years. Uh, so right. now it's, it's like so many other things that are going on right now, economic injustice all over the place and racial injustice. And, uh, you know, these these people that are in charge, and, and maybe some of them are doing it purposefully, but I think the system – just um, you know, it, it is that way, or it's become that way, and so you get a new crop of people that kind of grow up in the system. And they go, okay, this is the way it works. But we we have to now get essentially an uprising. We need to get that six percent of the United States population right. upset enough that uh, they understand what's right. going on, and then we change it. Uh, As a student of history, uh, I'm aware that during the height of the abolitionist movement, 5% of the uh, population were professed abolitionists. 
45% were anti-slavery. The other half were pro-slavery. But that's what it took to make that change. And it was yeah. just that small 5% of the people who were willing to stand up and say loud and clear, this is what's going on. I oppose it. I will not support it. And I'm going to tell the next guy the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's, well, that's what it's going to take. You know, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your own uh, district as well and maybe uh, make an appeal to the voters there because uh, if they're listening, if you're in the low country right now, South Carolina, and you're listening, uh, we need to end prison for profit. You all know that. And this man right here is only the second congressional candidate since 1848 to run on an abolitionist platform. That takes courage, the kind of courage that you want in your leadership. People are willing to stand up regardless of whether it's always been right or accepted. If it's wrong, it's wrong. So that's the people we want uh, to vote for. So if anything you want to say to the uh, constituents in your area? Yeah, well, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I think it's time the people here in, in the 1st Congressional District had uh, representation that wanted to do more than just no spending. And that's pretty much what we've had in this district now for the past uh, dozens of years. And uh, Mark Sanford is just the latest congressman that kind of toes that same line. And, and Mark Sanford is a, a one-issue candidate, and his issue is no spending. So he's going to vote uh, no when somebody asks for spending, and he's going to vote yes when somebody asks to cut the cost somewhere. Uh, so he doesn't always vote yes or no, but he, he does vote for no spending everywhere. And I think, as so many of us are aware, you know, when I, I listened earlier, and uh, you would ask Scotty, how you doing, Scotty? He says, I'm surviving. And so many of us are just surviving. And an awful lot of what we're all struggling with right now is um, because we've made these decisions to do no spending now for so long with the federal government and with some smart spending, instead of spending $15 billion on an aircraft carrier, let's spend $15 billion on upgrading our schools or something or let's give everybody a, a decent minimum wage that you can live on a, a living wage let's provide health care to everybody just like they do in every major developed country in the world you know we are so far behind here in america compared to our our uh, european even a lot of our asian uh neighbors so you know we we just need to understand that we've fallen behind and life now is worse for more of our people than it has been since the Great Depression. And people are struggling to, to get along. And I think right. we just need need people in Congress. We need a president in there who is going to uh, take advantage of this time in history and turn things around and uh, basically save humanity from itself because uh, where we are now, things are just not good. And if anybody has kids or grandkids, and, and I have both, uh, I, can't, I can't imagine how you're not concerned about your kids, and especially your grandkids. Uh, things need to get done. We need to take action immediately. And that's why I'm, I'm running for Congress. I, I'm going to take action. I have a question. Make sure things are better for everybody. Yeah. 
Um, this is Scotty, and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. We hope this won't be your last visit with us. And um, no, I, great. Thanks, I just want to commend you uh, for making abolitionism part of your uh, campaign platform. Uh, one of the questions that I have um, along the issue of, of private prisons and the role that private prisons uh, play in modern day slavery uh, legalized by the 13th Amendment. I'm finding among people who look like me, I am a black, I do classify myself as a, as a black uh, uh, man uh, without getting into, you know, the whole political social construct of white supremacy, which goes back to the uh, laws that were passed after Bacon's rebellion to make slavery race-based. But I'm finding that people look, who look like me are in overwhelming numbers have been voting for a woman who played no minor role. She played a major role, uh, even if it was just as a cheerleader, um, and I'm speaking of Hillary Clinton, in pushing these these modern uh, uh, slave codes that we see today. So what are, as you're out there on the campaign trail, I mean, what would you say is the, the level of, let's just say, uh, education on the issues uh, the, uh, among the voters that you talk to? Do they really understand what's going on or are they trapped in that superficial construct that has been set up by the corporate media? You're, you're, you're talking about in reference to Hillary Clinton in particular? Yes, sir. Yeah, boy, it's, it's frustrating. I, I, I'm a Bernie guy. I'm, I'm such a Bernie guy. You may have seen in the newspaper, I have a Bernie tattoo on my forearm, the first first tattoo I've ever had, and uh, I, you know, it, it seems obvious to me that Bernie is the right man for the time. He's he's so much the right man for the time that um, there's nobody else, nobody even comes close. And uh, all your frustration that you feel with Hillary, I feel it too, uh, and I I don't really understand what people see in her over Bernie uh, other than you know there are a lot of a lot of people that have been Hillary fans for a long time and I think they've got in their minds that we are going to have a woman president come hell or high water and and you know that's exactly what's going to come both hell and high water uh, if we we get Hillary in there because nothing's going to get done in in Washington uh, but I I I really uh, can't explain the deep love so many people have for Hillary. Uh, but not I just Hillary, um, Mr. Cherney, not just Hillary, yeah. but understanding the issues. The un you know, like we t people calling it mass incarceration. Okay, all right, but we yeah. call it. We know it's really a continuation of slavery. But just among the average voters that I talk to or interact with, they really, really don't understand the framework of mass incarceration and they don't under they don't know the players, you know. And and so the, yeah. is there a need for a voter education, just a a, a voter <laughs> education program for voters, man, because I'm just scratching my head in frustration that so many people are so ignorant of the players involved in most of the problems that we're faced with. You know, the, I think the, the, the biggest, the biggest problem right. I've seen Scotty and, and Max is that, that uh, 
so many Americans are just scrambling to survive, like you said, Scotty, at the, at the start of the show, uh, that they don't have time for any additional education. You know, they get out of high school, they got, got out of college, and that's about as far as they got in their, their personal education because they're just so busy surviving and, and scraping by and uh, you know, hoping they're not going to lose their job if they got a job, looking for a job if they don't have a job. It's just raising kids maybe. Um, but it's kind of like the, the, the if if our <laughs> if our conspiracy theorists, I would say this is the way the man wants it. The man wants to keep us all down and not learning anything new and not learning the real histories and not learning all of the injustices because then we'll all get together and we'll rise up against him. And you know, <laughs> when I say that right now, you know, maybe I am a conspiracy theorist because that sounds exactly right, doesn't it? I saw two, I know two reasons why people are like that, Scotty and uh, Dimitri and Johanna. One is I have a cousin in Patterson, New Jersey, Kalisha Free. Shout out to you, cuz. And she really just can't afford the internet like that. You know, she's a single mother raising three kids and she's barely making it. And her son's a teenager with a, a she's already a grandmother. She's, she's struggling right now. She's, and so she's not really, doesn't have that type of access to the internet every time she wants to be on it. But she wouldn't know anything about this stuff if it wasn't for me contacting her personally. So she knows all about abolitionism. But if it's not for me, she wouldn't. So Max, you're saying you're saying, you're saying you're uh, saying I'm in the I'm, I'm sorry. In the same boat. Now that's that's right. uh, I, if I hadn't heard from you, Max, I I'd just still be fat, dumb, and happy out here. Wouldn't know anything about this. So it, it's right, it's a marketing right. effort, is what it is. And and we, if we really want to get it out there, it has to be a marketing effort that goes across That's the right. entire nation. Yep. And the other one was we heard a story that we read on the air here a couple of weeks ago in this regarding the same question, where one South Carolina voter said, "Look, I work here all day long. I'm doing 14 hour shifts. I don't have time to be on the internet looking up these things. I'm just going to go with the name I recognize or straight party line." Yep. And we were upset. Yep. We were like, yo, that is pure laziness right there. You can't just type it in at the age of information and find out. But that's two reasons right there why it's went that way. We're at a cusp now where everybody doesn't have that access to information for one reason or another. Yeah. You know, and the only thing that makes a democracy work is an educated populace. And right now we have a minimally educated populace and people are – you know, if they have any spare time, they're looking at uh, cat pictures on the internet. <laughs> they're not, they're not yeah, right. researching stuff like this. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty frustrating. That's, that's the part we play when we bring it out. Because all you really have to do these days is say you're an abolitionist. And that's enough to start a conversation or enough to make people wonder, what the hell do we need an abolitionist for? They'll ask you, <laughs> you know? It's really that simple. And then you get a chance to explain it. And if you're in the position of power, like you're try about to be in, in Congress, you can do a lot more than just say, I'm an abolitionist. You can actually help push legislation to do abolitionist things, like end the 13th Amendment exception clause, uh, call for a constitutional, uh, 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 what do they call it, a constitutional memorandum, or would it bring all the congressmen together to change the Constitution? Whatever. Yeah. You can do those yeah. things. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's and that's what I'm open. That's one of the things at the top of my list. Johanan, is there any questions that you'd like to ask, Dimitri? No, no, not at all. Not at all. I've been enjoying listening to him, uh, you know, expound on his points and, and build up uh, build up the case. I mean, it sounds, <clears throat> sounds to me like he understands exactly what's going on. So, I mean, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. And 
Uh, I'm just thankful that, uh, as we discussed in the intro to the program tonight, that there are so many who are coming in uh, and announcing themselves as, you know, abolitionist candidates because that's what we desperately need. So I, I just mm-hmm. uh, tip my hat to you and say thank you for, for going out there and putting your name on the line, putting your life on the line, really. No, thanks, yeah, thanks yeah. man. I, yeah, I hope, hope I'm not putting my life on the line, but, uh, yeah, definitely put my name on the line. But, you know, again, it's, this is, it's a no-brainer for me. It's like once, once you find out that slavery is still legal and it has been, it's like why would, why would anybody want that? That, it's just it's a complete no-brainer. So, you know, well, we got to fix that. That was that was a big mistake made. So I, I don't feel like I'm doing anything daring here. I'm just correcting a really ridiculous mistake from the past. That is the soundbite of the week right there. <laughs> that is it right there, soundbite of the week, man. It's so simple. I mean, once you know, you become responsible for what you know. And then you can, you can act like you don't know, but... You can't say nobody ever showed you. And we're showing every day beyond a shadow of a doubt how these things exist, both historically and presently. Um, is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with, uh, Dimitri, before we conclude with our interview this evening? And as Scotty Reed said, let's not make this the only time. We want to give you that new abolitionist bump in the voting polls and uh, bringing out the yeah. voters. So we want to help you along the way. We want you to win, bro. <laughs> right? well, that'd, be, that'd, be gr- that'd be great. Well, Thanks. You know, one of the one of the things I'm learning here is uh, how how messed up the entire system is. You know, I'll go back to my little conspiracy theory that this is the way the man wants us to be, but I'm but I'm finding every day more and more so as I'm as I'm getting deeper and deeper into this campaign is that uh, even campaign systems are are set up now so that only the rich can play, and I am by far from a, a rich man. Used to be doing pretty well, but uh, not anymore. And it's it's a, a distortion of democracy. The amount of money that we have to raise to run a successful campaign here in America that just plain doesn't happen in other countries. You know, um, on Sunday afternoon, I stood out on uh, Church Street here with a, a sandwich board sign on the front and the back of me that said, uh, "Do you vote? Why or why not?" I ended up speaking with, with 54 different people, just just asking, just for information purposes. I wasn't necessarily campaigning. I, I kind of wanted to get the conversation started a little bit. But um, what what I uh, – I lost my train of thought. Oh, oh before I – mean, I'm, I'm sorry, Dimitri. Be, before you yeah, go – Go ahead. Um, Dimitri, yeah. before you go – um, your yeah. opponent has name recognition, so tell people who you're running against, and are there are exactly. are, are there any debates planned? Because I would love to, you know, uh, hear you debate him on the issues. No, nothing's nothing's planned at this point, but uh, we have a uh, or I got a general gentleman's agreement from him uh, about a month ago or so. We ran into each other somewhere, and and uh, we're cordial. Mark Mar actually seems like a a pretty good guy face to face. And uh, he tentatively said, "Yeah, maybe we do a, a debate in the uh, in the end of the year uh, before before the election. So uh, we'll see. It probably would, wouldn't happen till September or October or something like that." I mean, because I I, I think that that would that's part of the voter education and raising these issues and even educating him. Educating maybe once maybe he's never heard the truth and if he hears the truth then maybe he might become an abolitionist through the process. 
Yep. Exactly right. And, you know, and, and there's an awful lot of things that uh, would make uh, all of our candidates and all of our elected representatives um, be much better people if we can just change change a few of their thoughts right now and things, things could, could get a lot better. Well, you definitely nailed it with the uh, election industrial complex. Because <laughs> that's yeah, what it's become, yeah. an election industrial complex. So let me go, let me go back to that. Uh, I'm not sure where I was going with the other story, but uh, <laughs> what I, what I've discovered is, you know, this is a, an, a a very expensive proposition, and just buying the database of the list of previous voters out there uh, is is a thousand dollars. Just to to register to to sign up to get on the ballot is thirty five hundred dollars. My friend, uh, Pastor Thomas Dixon, who you guys should probably have on the show also, um, is running for the Senate, and it's 10000 bucks for him to get on there. And then if you, you think about it from a marketing perspective, I, I'll have to break, uh, bring out 200,000 people to vote for me to win this thing. So from a marketing perspective, if, I, if it cost me a dollar to get each one of those voters, just to get in front of them, I'm talking about $200,000 minimum. But it's probably going to be closer to five dollars per voter. It's, it's like a you know a million dollars to run a campaign in this in this day and age. That well, was my if point. I could, I'm, going to, I, I'm sorry. If I could give you some yeah. advice, I I actually uh, was a volunteer um, for um, Tom. Um, he ran for the Senate down there um, in South Carolina uh, for the Green Party. Uh, Tom Clements. I actually, oh, okay. yeah, and I live here in North Carolina, but, you know, I wasn't a paid position, but I volunteered for uh, his campaign, and I mostly focused on his social media campaigning. See, what the reason why these elections are, are so expensive is because TV time and terrestrial radio time, ad buys yeah. or media buys are very expensive, mm-hmm. but, That's it. but, if people use social media, which Bernie Sanders, you know, and mostly all the candidates do, but Bernie Sanders, from what I've observed, has been heavy on Facebook and Twitter ads. And as yeah. a person who manages those type of pages, you can pay for those ads, which are not terribly expensive, and you can right. target them. Um, so it might be that you don't even need a voter database, but just... Look up the data, see, see. Um, well, all the district is in the same uh, zip code, so you just target your voting to zip code. That's all you do. Yeah. And you yeah, know, maybe. And so uh, that is a viable way that you could compete. And if you continue to raise, and also they use it for fundraising a whole lot. Yeah. And so I am, you know, as a political analyst, I do think that strategy. Uh, can work, you know, for those who don't have as much funds as, you know, the establishment candidates. So I hope that you're you're considering that. And I also would like to say to the abolitionist audience out there, um, I mentioned that we have five candidates that are openly running as abolitionists. So um, they need help. And if you live in their areas or even if you don't, you might could pitch in, you know, through the virtual, you know, again, social media. Um, but, um, you know, if y'all could post in Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery and Human Trafficking uh, that you would like to volunteer or even contribute, 
contribute, you know, some money to their campaigns. Please uh, make that known that you would like to volunteer. Max, can we get the five candidates uh, posted and we'll even pin it to the top in the group um, so that, you know, people can uh, volunteer for uh, these abolitionist candidates? Uh, I'll get it as soon as I'm, I'm able to with this Internet problem, but I have posted them up before. Uh, the names, as far as I know, right here, we have one of those uh, honorable people that's Dimitri Cherney. Another one is the uh, Muhaddin Dubaha, running for senator out of South Carolina, uh, which we both, Dimitri and I, know. Uh, another one would be Paulette Cunningham, running for mayor in Eastover, South Carolina. Christopher Irving, as well, uh, running for city council out in Baltimore, Maryland. <clears throat> I think, did I get them all or am I missing one? I think I got them all. <laughs> but I'll definitely put it up as soon as possible. So, so my major point there was, you know, we we all need to raise at least some amount of money to to make this happen. And uh, any any support that uh, your your listeners could provide would be greatly appreciated. Uh, you know, five dollars, ten dollars, hundred dollars, thousand dollars would be great. Uh, but whatever whatever people feel like it would be worth uh, to them to have some abolitionists in Congress. Well, love to get tomorrow this, get I will make a donation around. myself. I'll make a donation yeah. myself. I don't have a lot, but I'll give what I can give tomorrow. Make sure that I put my money where my mouth is. And make sure you check them out at Cherney for Congress, spelled C-H-E-R-N-Y for Congress.us. That's uh, your page, right? That's it. Yeah. Thanks, Max. And also, you can find him on Facebook as well uh, under, is it Cherney for Congress? Yep, same thing, Journey for Congress on Facebook. Journey for Congress on Facebook. So show your support. So if you're really an abolitionist, I mean, just show some love. Show some support. Send a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars. We need to get more abolitionists in office. It's the way we're going to make change. It's not going to happen overnight. This took 400 years to occur. We're not just going to get rid of it like that. It's going to take us some time and some effort, hopefully not too much. But, but we can change the laws overnight. Yes. Maybe a long battle to get to that point, but one day they're there and the next day they're next not. Day they're and that's, that's when change starts. Yes, sir. Yes, well, thank you for being here, and we'll talk to you again soon, uh, Brother yeah, thanks. Dimitri. Peace. Thanks, thanks, Max. Thanks, Scotty. See you good guys. Night. Good night Peace and soon. good luck. There you have it, man. Uh, congressional candidate running out of South Carolina for first uh, district, low, count, low, south, low country South Carolina. Uh, Dimitri Cherney, make sure you make a donation if you're able to support, do so. Uh, I'm, I'm digging with his conversation, man. He's taking this very seriously and he sees it so simply. I mean, he, like he, he quoted a few times. How can you not once you know? Right, right. And it didn't I like take that long too. I picked up on that too, that he wasn't making it all difficult or clouded or anything. He was very directed to the point. So I, I did notice that. But then right. think about the speed of his conversion. Uh, that's a max conversion right there. That's a convert <laughs> to abolition. But again, like I've stated, but then, you know, the education, the level of education and, and ability to comprehend uh, what you're reading uh, in English in the 13th Amendment. And people don't comprehend it. But for some others, they just read it one time like me. And that light bulb goes off, and they see the yeah, contradictions the in the construction of the language. Amen to that. And then you start going further and seeing more and more and more. And before you know it, your perspective is changing for the rest of your life, like mine has with this Alabama story. Like I said, I, I didn't really see these things uh, 
in that light, or maybe it just didn't click for me properly. And as Johanna was telling me last night that he had already been looking at it like that. So, yeah, man, I wish you would have given it to me a little harder. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, but, when we had the uh, when we covered the Wallace County uprising uh, last year, about this same time, wasn't this Scotty about this time of year? Because right. uh, that's when uh, yeah. uh, Abolitionist Daily was was uh, still coming on day to day when that happened. That's uh that's you know what we refer to it as, and then there were several that went on. Uh, Wallace County, there was a. Uh, I believe there was South Carolina as a prisons in South Carolina. Yeah, will, uh, uh, well, Lassie County, but let's point this out, though, Johanna, mm-hmm. is that uh-huh. uh, Lassie County in te- Texas, that was that was uh, MTC, I believe. That was a private right. private prison, which will be right. would yeah. be abolished, and it was for uh, Im- immigrant uh, detainees. And, right, immigrant detention. Yeah, so that's the private prisons right there that wouldn't even exist. You know, if this this bill, uh, the Justice is Not for Sale Act 2015 is is passed, so so that would you know that would eliminate that. Um, Alabama's a state-owned um, facility. I believe the uprisings that occurred in South Carolina were also state-run. Um, so there's been a number of them, but uh, Holman that's going on in Alabama is definitely being suppressed in the mainstream media because, you know, usually they run about three days behind uh, what we do on the Internet. They're three days behind us before they pick it up and pick that story up. And it's Mm -hmm. been, what, since Friday? And uh, it's Wednesday night, so almost a week, you know, five days. And it still ain't touched mainstream. No concern whatsoever. None. None. Because this also, yeah. you know, with Free Alabama movement um, over the last few years, you know, they they have been able to get um, the word out about what's going on. Uh, Georgia also state prisons were able to get unified to some extent and uh, and and start to uh, rebel against the system as well. So these are uh, becoming. Bay. What's that? Pelican Bay, the hunger strikes. Yeah, yeah. So and these are becoming strikes. known. These are becoming known, uh, well, I mean, abolitionists, they're becoming known activist uh, slave uh, uh, plantations that are likely to have, you know, revolts and, and uprisings and what have you. So just saying that to say, I mean, that the state itself is going to, of course, put the mute on it so it doesn't continue to gain any kind of momentum if they can help us. Well, I think we're coming up on our first break. Let's take our break. And when we come back, we're going to give them some of these stories that we're talking about so our listeners can be up to date on what happened out in Alabama and where they stand at right now. Uh, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with Johanna Nalaya, Scotty Reed, and Max Parthas. We'll be right back after these messages. I don't know what this world is coming to. <laughs> Nat Turner's 1831 slave rebellion stuns the nation and pushes the South's slave policing system to its limits. For white Virginians and white slaveholders across the South, it was uh, a shock. 
the paranoia shoots off a scale. 50 dead today, how many dead tomorrow? In Southampton County, Virginia, Nat Turner, an enslaved preacher, has his own interpretation of the Bible. He believes that God has chosen him to avenge the sins of slavery. As Turner makes his rounds preaching in the field, he quietly enlists other slaves to his cause. For months, the men meet secretly, conspiring on the plans of their uprising. In the early morning hours of August 21st, 1831, Turner and his men launched one of the largest slave rebellions in American history. The rebels move from home to home, killing every white person they meet. As they advance towards the nearby town of Jerusalem, more recruits join them. The local slave patrols have failed to uncover Turner's plot. So the militia is called out to track down and kill the rebels. For 36 hours, the rebellion rages on. Church bells ring out in distress. Rumors spread among whites that the whole southern slave population has finally exploded in revolt and that the British are invading to liberate the slaves. As panic swells, the United States government provides important military support. And that support is ensured by slaveholder power. Don't forget that slavery is protected not only by the slaveholder, not, not only by the local militia or the state militia, but also by the full force of the military might of the United States of America. Except for that, slavery would not have been possible in the South. As the hunt for Nat Turner and his men continues, 800 U.S. troops join 2,000 local militiamen. Within a week, the rebellion is squashed. More than 50 rebels are captured. Nearly 60 white men, women, and children have been killed. The violence doesn't fully subside until Nat Turner is captured two months later on October 31st, not by a patrol or slave catcher, but by a farmer, by accident. Turner is tried, hanged, and skinned. In all, the state executes 55 black people for conspiring with Turner. The Turner Rebellion frightened whites literally out of their minds, and yet even that wasn't strong enough to provoke them to get rid of slavery as an institution. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. As you uh, heard previously, we were telling you about these slave rebellions happening in these prisons, these slave plantations all across America. Organized rebellions with hunger strikes like Pelican Bay and some in violence. Uh, sometimes the catalyst isn't even the rebellion to begin with. Just it's an opportunity that begins a rebellion. And here in Alabama at Holman Prison, prison we had one recently. It says, And this is uh, the most recent one I'll read you right now. It says, the list of demands for men incarcerated at Holman Prison in Alabama. Two uprisings occurred at Holman Prison in Alabama over the last four days. One, 
starting on Friday night involved fires being set after the warden was stabbed. The second on Monday morning involved 70 to 100 men barricading themselves inside their dormitory. The men at home in prison have released a set of demands. Sent to me via video, the six demands are listed below. One, we inmates at home in prison ask for immediate federal assistance. Two, we ask that the Alabama government release all inmates who have spent excessive time in Holman Prison due to the conditions of the prison and overcrowding of these prisons in Alabama. Just for the record, at last count, Alabama prisons were at 200% capacity. That is way beyond overcrowding. We ask that the 446 laws, habitual felony offender laws, that Alabama holds as of 1975 be abolished. So there are apparently these laws called the Habitual Felony Offender Laws that have been around since 1975 that they want abolished. We ask that parole board release all inmates who fit the criteria to be back in society with their families. We are very familiar here at New Abolitionist Radio with how these parole boards and probation companies for profit operate, keeping these men on probation and parole for as long as possible just to maintain their own jobs. We ask that these prisons in Alabama implement proper classes that will prepare inmates to be released back into society with 21st century information that will prepare inmates to open and own their own businesses instead of making them have to beg for a job. That sounds like a very reasonable request to me. Uh, number six, we also ask for monetary damage, for mental pain and physical abuse that inmates have already suffered, indeed. And uh, they finish it with saying, for more information on Alabama's habitual felony offender law, their version of the three-strike law, read uh, the quick explanation, and they have a link for it here at this uh, website, which is a medium corporation U.S., and then these two longer ones here and here. So they have like three pieces of information on the Alabama's habitual felony offender law, which is comparable to the three-strike laws. Brothers? Indeed, as you said, it's a, a, a list that makes perfect sense and seems completely humane and within reason to me. But, of course, I'm an abolitionist, so I believe that modern-day slavery needs to end. I believe uh, that human rights are... Uh, you know, inherent and cannot be taken away by any laws of the land or any borders or any beliefs or any political systems, anything like that. I believe people have basic human rights. So if you're going to keep these people and you're going to be collecting funds that you claim you're using to take care of them, and then you're going to put them into slave labor on the back end of it and generate revenue for yourself and do all these things we talk about on this program, then at least prepare them for you know when the time comes when they can be released but it's just difficult man because we all know what the game is so yeah but uh, i especially uh like the part about training us to be entrepreneurs instead of having to beg these people where these federal laws and state laws and um you know are set up to set up legal discrimination so you know even without putting the ratio in it it just racializes um i mean more black people are affected because we are the ones disproportionately being run through this system and then labeled for life 
with that F. It's like they stamping you with a permanent slave. That's what's in your file right there. You know, you right. know, you got a temporary pass to freedom and you do this, do that or whatever to survive out here on these streets. And, uh, you know, you right back in for life, like what they were talking about. That's federalized, too. And again, this goes back to voters voting for people with a history of this. And, and like you think that somebody you know, in 20 years, just going to change their, I mean, I don't even want to go through all of that, but all, you know, all this support for Hillary Clinton, you know, that's just absolutely ridiculous. And, and she, you know, these states copied a lot of that information. It was just like when they were saying that slavery couldn't exist without the full force of the U.S. military. That's the federal government. And it, and, and it's going on today. They all the states do is model what the federal government does because it will be unconstitutional. They will be in violation. So, you know, to keep putting these people who helped create the system. And so, no, Hillary didn't and the Clintons didn't start it. You know, we see these laws been from these brothers research been on on the books in the state of Alabama since 1975. And they're calling for their abolishment. And we should be calling for the abolishment of the same of the federal. If you ain't even talking about that, you to uh, abolitionists, you shouldn't even be considered as a candidate. You know, I, well, I don't mean to go on, go on a rant, but they're right. I'm this very happy. I, I'm very happy that things are going in a manner where we're working alongside those who are in these cages. They're fighting for their freedom just as hard as we are outside fighting for their freedom. And at any moment, we can switch places. We don't know. But it's going to require that. they got to fight from inside just like we fight from outside. And abolitionist movements are being formed within the prisons, like the Free Alabama Movement. Um, and Alabama, we also know for certain that it ranks as one of the most corrupt states in the Union. And just last year, there was a big expose where the FBI agent had infiltrated the prisons and uh, found out about all of these civil rights violations that were habitually uh, going on over and over and over again. So uh, we know that Alabama is one of the most terrible places you could possibly be in prison at. Uh, as we said, they use slave labor there now, where uh, the Free Alabama Movement has pointed out that McDonald's products is made right there in Alabama by the prisoners. They also use the phone centers as well. And they're doing that while the prison population is at 200%. 200%. I mean, imagine you and your wife living in a one-bedroom apartment. Suddenly, there's four people there. And let's make one of them a, a killer. And then let's lock the door and put bars on the windows and say, now live there. That's what's happening. Hmm. Yeah. Also know about Tutwiler Prison, the most notorious, one of the most notorious uh, women's prisons where they have openly admitted, you know, the, when asked, the guards admitted to taking sexual liberties with, with the uh, inmates there. We know that they've already busted them for uh, requiring sexual favors for basic toiletries and, you know, tampons and so forth. So, I mean, this is, that's rape. That's rape. That's all yeah, it is. Yeah. It's rape. Yeah. Chinese propaganda just released a video that I downloaded yesterday. I'm going to get some clips from it and upload it. But they was that prison in Michigan where they had Weiler. was that Michigan or New York where they had them hog tied those women, uh, hog tied literally hog tied butt naked Michigan. and laying on Michigan the floor. Michigan, it wouldn't give them any water. It wouldn't give them water for days. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, it was in Michigan. Michigan. 
this this is the kind of questions that need to be asked at these presidential town halls and whatnot. And you know, again, kudos to the sister. She I saw her get emotional. She was passionate when but she asked Hillary Clinton, hey, this some are calling it modern day slavery. We need more real questions like that and giving examples of that. You the brother who sat on death row locked up for 40 something years you know he would be a rider of the rail underground railroad today he he probably been featured if we haven't featured him yet you know and he asked her that question so i'm like you know i don't i don't want my vitriol that i feel for hillary clinton to come through like that and inject that negative energy so but you know we need people asking real questions when you get an opportunity to grab the mic if you're gonna grab the mic you better you know uh, say something more than a chant over and over. You know what I'm saying? Come on. Yeah, Alabama is going through some serious issues. These are one of those states that I t- I tend to suggest bringing out the National Guard uh, to rescue the people from what's occurring within these prison systems. We uh, also know we reported on this uh, program about the uh, Birmingham uh, jail, which was sentencing black people in particular to jail because they were too poor to pay fines, which is one of the stories we'll be talking of next, as a matter of fact. These uh, poverty courts, these debtor prisons, where they're just shuffling them into the prisons because you can't pay a fine. And the way to set them up is, as we've shown over and over again, is that initial condition, that initial contact with these police out there, either filling quotas or just... uh, doing whatever it is a racist would do when they need to hunt people. So, yeah, Alabama, uh, more power to you. And I, I just want to let people know about the story that Johanna mentioned, uh, Tutwiler Prison. You should look that up, uh, Tutwiler Women's Prison. For the past decade, those women have been molested and brutalized uh, at the hand of guards who have yet to be prosecuted. Forty percent of them admitted that they were doing it. And the interview that I'll upload within the coming days is one young lady who was telling her story about how she had to go through all of this over and over again. And she just got tired of it. Finally, I started telling people. Imagine that, man. Imagine being a woman in Alabama. You get pulled over some marijuana, traffic fines or something like that and get put in this place. And suddenly you got to offer a blowjob for toothpaste or uh, personal hygiene things or just to take a shower hmm. that's happening in alabama terrorism man it's domestic it's uh, terrorism we already uh we already know well let's get on to our next story uh we're gonna i guess the next one is about the local court that was uh had its circuit district judge order a lower judge to stop putting people in the jails in a prison for profit scheme that they were running there. Johanna, can you pull that one up? I'm having some problems here with the technology I'm using. Alrighty. Um, we've got two that are that are somewhat related to it. This one is from uh Freep, F R E E P, uh Detroit Free Press uh dot com. Um, and you know, again it's a it's a similar story as we've been reporting on for the, for quite a while now. You know, prison for profit, and then also uh, people being uh, being uh, stopped and jailed and, and profiled and everything else. We know that it's, uh, municipalities are, are using this uh, to generate uh, profit. It says uh, East Point's only judge 
has been ordered to stop jailing poor defendants simply for failing to pay court fines and fees. The practice the American Civil Liberties Union called a good first step toward ending a practice said to be common across the state. And we know across the country, Ferguson is America. In an order issued Tuesday, the Macomb County Circuit Court judge says uh, Judge Carl Gers of 38 District Court would have to halt the pay-or-stay sentencing uh, program that he's been using. So it's pay-or-stay. <sighs> Crazy. If what they stopped you for originally was something that warranted time in jail, then it would be stayed to begin with. But it's the fact that it don't have nothing to do with jail. It's some kind of a fine or whatever. And then they turn it into being a jailable offense. It's ridiculous. The ACLU sued Gerds last year, arguing he routinely jailed people for failing to pay minor tickets and court fees. We are relieved to know that defendants in East Point no longer have to worry about landing in what amounts to illegal debtor's prisons. Uh, Michael J. Stern, Steinberg of the ACLU, uh, he's the Michigan legal director, said in a statement. Steinberg also said the court order upholds a basic principle of fairness in our nation that nobody should be jailed just because he or she is too poor to pay the fines, fees, and costs. The ACLU first challenged the judge in July by filing a lawsuit on behalf of a woman uh, who was facing jail time because she failed to license her dogs and then did not appear in court to face those charges. The woman, a single mother of two young children who receives government assistance, was unable to pay the $455 in fines that Judge Gers ordered. In court filings, Gers' attorney said Gers was never going to send a woman to jail, but the attorney also has said Gers was following court rules. Yet the ACLU pointed to a Supreme Court precedent arguing that judges can't simply jail someone for being poor. The judge needs to gauge the defendant's ability to pay, and then develop a payment plan if the defendant can't pay up front or come up with a sentence such as one involving community service. Again, Ferguson is America. The city, the city council members told the city manager and the mayor and the chief of police that doing this policing for profit that they were doing and jailing people over fines <clears throat> was not working and people did not like it and didn't want it. And there was plenty of models around the country of presenting people with community service as opposed to jailing. And they told that they told that city uh, council member to shut up. It's in the minutes in the DOJ report on Ferguson. It's in the minutes of the meeting. They told them we're not going to follow that. We're going to stick with our revenue generation program. And they went from a million dollars a year off of city off of tickets and fines, municipal fines, to nearly three point two million dollars over a couple of years. Uh, just only a couple of years later, uh, from the you know from that meeting, about the same time as Michael Brown died. So this is something that people are doing all over the country. Anyway, I'll post the link to the story um, on the New Abolitionist radio page. But this is uh, this is going on all over the country, man. This is not just – I mean, if you all remember, we had the brother that came on the program a couple of months ago who was an attorney who was in Michigan that was uh, – he came on because he was making a case for the courts having given, given the people clemency, like to come in and you can pay your fines or they give you a free pass or whatever, and the folks was Fire supposedly – yeah, the people were supposedly black folks was complaining because it was freezing cold outside and they were standing in a line, you know, two blocks long. And he was upset saying Negroes just don't want to appreciate nothing that the man tried to give them. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I'm appreciative of one thing, that we're seeing this system of slavery and human trafficking on the ropes now, that their agents are, are, are losing positions and power and authority. They're being forced to face and being held accountable to at least some degree. 
uh, as we see with the circuit court judge who is demanding that this other court uh, stop using this prison for profit uh, pipeline. They haven't said anything about charging him because it's illegal. It's unconstitutional. They've said as much. They sued him, so they haven't mentioned anything about charging him with crimes. Thank but you, they're Max. saying stop. Thank you. Thank you. Just like Donald Trump is violating federal codes, state codes. That's why, you know, that county in North Carolina opened up that investigation of inciting a riot, you know, where the old man, probably a Klan member, you know, North Carolina known for Klan members. And, and so he was he probably, you know, he said next time we might have to kill him. You know, he probably didn't participated in the torture and the killing of uh, one or two black people in his lifetime. He's say about seventy-two years old. You know, uh, eighty. No, I think he's like I don't know, but he threw an elbow. I guess he's been watching, you know, MMA Dude, or he's something doing like that. Like he was a twenty-year-old boxer. Yeah, and then Donald Trump talking about now pay your fees and 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 it's not just there, but in, in a number of places. And so what they're trying to make it look like is nonviolent people following the model of, of Martin Luther King Jr., the nonviolent protest. Just some just get in line. They don't even get in. No intentions of protesting. You can't get in because based on your skin color and this is a private, you know, what have you. But they were going to charge him, man. But the sheriff shut it down. They shut the investigation down because that is illegal under North Carolina uh, state law and it resulted in then his his comments uh you know on the campaign trail and so the federal government can charge him right now any of those regional u.s attorneys loretta lynch herself can bring charges against them and i was talking about this earlier on tanya free and friends where these people you know had the power to prosecute these people and it's clear that i mean even the mainstream media ain't trying to pretend anymore they're actually saying he's inciting people to violence well that's in the code that's the federal code you got all this evidence and you ain't charged him so the federal government is once again enabling you know uh the system of slavery yeah, the federal government says by lack of just by lack of action, you are enabling. You know what I'm saying? You don't even have to be like they talk about, you know, drug addicts that they like to prey upon and put them in prison and, and make slaves of them. But they, you know, say that uh, those people who stay with them, their partners or whatnot, oh, you know, you're enabling him. Why don't you kick them out, do this or that or, or however, but you know, it, that the federal government is enabling it. It's fair. I mean, it's in the constitution. Slavery is punishment for crime. So, man. I'm, I'm going to have to find out what a constitutional violation uh, ends in as far as uh, the charges that you may be, uh, may, may be applied to you or what punishments may occur if you violate a constitutional right or amendment. What are those things? I'm curious because the federal government doesn't seem to do much. As a matter of fact, they, here's what they're doing now, which is the next story. Uh, they're both kind of together. We talked about the local judge. Let's talk about the federal judges, what they're doing real quick to tie this together. On a federal level in Washington, the Justice Department on Monday called on state judges across the country to root out unconstitutional policies. Again, don't take these words lightly. When they say unconstitutional, that's exactly what they mean. Policies that have locked poor people in a cycle of fines, debts, and jail. It was the Obama administration's latest effort 
to take its civil rights agenda to the states, which have become a frontier in the fight over the rights of the poor and the disabled, the transgender and the homeless. In a letter to chief, <clears throat> to chief judges and court administrators, Vanita Gupta, the Justice Department's top civil rights prosecutor, and Lisa Foster, who leads a program on court access, warned against operating courthouses as for-profit ventures. Okay, now we got the, the federal just Department of Justice telling you that it is occurring. <laughs> and they're warning these people who are actually doing it. It chastised judges and court staff members for using arrest warrants as a way to collect fees. Such policies, the letter said, made it more likely that poor people would be arrested, jailed, and fined anew, all for being unable to pay in the first place. But it doesn't end there, and this is me saying that. It goes to prison after that. Once you can't pay these jails and fees, you'll eventually end up serving some time in prison or years in jail. It is unusual for the Justice Department to write such a letter. It last did so in 2010 when the department told judges that they were obligated to provide translators for people who could not speak English. The letters do not have the force of law, but they declare the federal government's position and put local officials on notice about its priority. Really, you're declaring your position. That's all you can do. Like, we don't like it. That's it. Okay. Mr. Gupa said that in some cities, hefty fines serve, uh, Mrs. Gupa, Gupta said, in some cities, hefty fines serve as a sort of bureaucratic cover charge for the right to seek justice. Damn. <clears throat> People cannot even start the process of defending themselves until they have settled their debts. This unconstitutional practice is often framed as a routine administrative matter, Ms. Gupta wrote. For example, a motorist who is arrested for driving with a suspended license may be told that the penalty for the citation is $300 and that a court date will be scheduled only upon completion of a $300 payment. The letter, letter echoes the conclusions of the Justice Department's investigation of the police department and court in Ferguson, Missouri. Investigators say uh, they concluded that the court was a money-making venture, not an independent branch of government. Ms. Gupta, who oversaw that investigation, has often cited Ferguson as a cautionary tale in her speeches, describing how fines for minor offenses like jaywalking pulled people into the criminal justice system and made it impossible to escape. Uh, I believe Johanna will probably post it up so you can read the remainder of it on New Abolitionist Radio. Comments, brothers? Yeah. I'll post it up there. I just want to add in here that while we're talking about this and, you know, this started with the story talking about the judge uh, telling another judge to stand down, you know, on, on this uh, illegal practice. Um, I, it's just always relevant, you know, to, to remind people that as we've reported here for the last couple of years, 94% of state cases being adjudicated through a plea bargain, a plea deal. Uh, facing stacked up charges, somebody who does not have money to pay a bail has been arrested and is sat in jail for a year or two, three years in some cases. As our brother R.I.P. Uh, Khalif Browder, three years, never saw a day in court. Um, so people can sit and languish in jails for extended periods of time, lose their entire families, lose their entire lives, lose everything they ever had just because they got arrested and charged with something before they ever even get a chance to face have a day in court. And the judges are the ones that said 
that they're being hamstrung because the prosecutors have the power to stack charges and throw uh, throw a plea deal at the person. And after a time of torture, they go ahead and agree to just take whatever so they can move the process on. So 90, what was it, 94 percent of state cases, 97 percent of federal cases ending in plea deals. So the judges said that they're taking away the power of the judge to ever see evidence, to ever hear testimony. They don't get the jury doesn't get a chance to see any evidence or, or, or you know, uh, uh, judge the case for themselves. So this is a violation of your constitutional rights. So we already know this as a backdrop. And then you add in here on the other side, the federal detention cases that are clogging up our federal courts. The most cases of any kind in our federal courts in this country are immigration related cases. They've got a 34,000 bed per day mandate that's congressionally created and has been renewed and is being enforced. And we just saw last year, Obama gave out $3.8 billion to the so-called border crisis. So all of this is going on in our courts is all I'm trying to paint a picture of. And this is happening from our judges on one side, they can't do their job in criminal cases. On another case, they can't do anything but face immigration cases. And then in these kind of cases on the municipal level, though, they are corrupt and driving in major revenue. And they're using racist practices to do it. Yes, because the attorneys general produce the racial profiling reports every year. Some states are a little more transparent than others. The state of Missouri, you can see the reports like we posted the reports for Ferguson and showing the people that when they are stopped who have the highest rates of contraband who have the highest numbers of arrest warrants, who are violating the laws most frequently, and they are not black people. But black people are stopped and some five to ten times more likely to be stopped and jailed after being stopped, searched. All of these things. So these racial profiling reports are showing us when they're transparent enough for us to be able to see the information. Some states, like my state of Kansas, won't even show you the numbers unless the case goes all the way through. The, the charges or the allegation of uh, police misconduct go all the way through and uh, the, the uh, cops in question or the departments in question are found guilty if they're not found guilty of anything then they don't tell you the numbers so these are going this thing is going on on a municipal level to, to, in a predatory sense and then as you move up to the state level the federal level it's an incompetence type of thing and all of it is working together to create mass incarceration and therefore uh, feed the slavery machine I don't know where you're coming from, though, with all these uh, uh, classifications and racism and allegations of racism, because I heard today from this black conservative <laughs> that, you know, racism didn't exist, don't exist because we're all humans. There's one race, wow. and that's the human race. And so, okay. you know, therefore, it can't exist. And so, you know, that's just totally ignoring the common usage of what the masses of the people understand racism to be both black, white, whatever, you know, that's the common usage. That's the common tongue, as they say, in the context of how they're using the word racism. But you also have racial classifications on the on the on the census, you know, but this ridiculous notion, I think, you know, maybe Morgan Freeman started this stuff when he was interviewed on CNN. He talking about racism don't exist as if it's a matter of your mind or something. If you change the I'm definition. Sure they were saying that in 1865, too. If you change the definition, then it don't exist. 
Well, you know what? A lot of these people that's practicing racism, they don't have your worldview and they targeting people based on uh, genetic variants in the human race. So to the, you know, more melanation, you know, even your, if you got chinky eyes, I mean, the whole ra- you look at the racist language used throughout history, chinks and right. uh, racial slurs and, uh, you know, you too dark or your hair nappy and, and, you know, everything non-European, you know, what has right. been caricatured in, in media and, in to, you know, enforce that social, uh, uh, programming in the minds of the, the dominant populations, the non, you know, the white populations, those they classify as white. But, you know, those, they, when I hear people say that to a national audience, no less, you're making it dangerous. You're putting my family in more dangerous because, you know, we're not leaving uh, our ancestral uh, land and we are surrounded by the Trump supporters, the people most likely to support uh, Trump, the, the Confederate flag wavers, the mind you, you know, these are their battle flags. And then Trump long, longing for the good old days. And, and so, you know, we need to stop all this nonsense. This is human rights crimes that are being committed when you target people by race. So the victims that are non-black or non-Hispanic or, you know, the poor uh, whites, those are still crimes as too. We are against, you know, uh, for the state to stop committing crimes against everyone, despite the classification. It's not a matter of, you know, their ethnicity, but you are targeting others more so than you are white people. So, uh, you know, it just really pains me, you know, because I'm surrounded by these people, man. If he called them out for a riot, you know, then, man, we're just going to have to be some quick reloaders up here. Let me tell you. And, and, and so yeah, man. I got him here where I'm at too, bro. Got a Confederate flag waver right down the street and right a couple of houses down there from that FBI. Oh, and what churches be on high alert, okay? Because we know where Dylan Roof would be if he wasn't behind bars right now. We know where he would be. Thank you. I'll leave it at that, y'all. Red alert. Yeah, watch out. Um, one of the things that stands out for me in this narrative is that we're showing people that uh, being in jail is not automatically an association of guilt on a very large scale. Uh, you know, I hear all the time, if they had stayed out of trouble, they never went to jail. They hadn't done this, they hadn't done that, they were still alive. All of these different things uh, don't really apply. We're literally hunting innocent people and then using a system of poverty to force feed them through this grinder we call a justice system. You're stopping them on the streets, forcing them to pay $400,000, $800,000 fines, and they start losing their jobs because they spend days in jails because they couldn't afford your freaking fine. And it just falls apart from there, and you're destroying people's lives who have never done anything wrong. In the interest of full disclosure, disclosure, I live in an 80% county that is white, that is primarily uh, jobless. I don't care whatever uh, unemployment rate they they give it. It is jobless. uh, My daughter was just working at a plant that manufactured trucks for Freightliner. I forget the name of the company. Well, uh, I think it was Dimer, Chrysler, something like that. Anyway, they thousands of people just lost their jobs. The meals being got up out of here. 
you know, the cotton mills weaving, you know, the textiles is what it's called. Those being left. So these do, these people up here, these poor white people is existing on EBT cards, Social Security, mm. uh, growing food with, where they can if they have any land left to grow food, and uh, uh, cooking up meth and uh, selling meth to those who want to buy meth. And that jail is full. Uh, that heroin epidemic is hit here too, that good Afghan opium. Uh, uh, excuse me, heroin made from the poppy fields that's being guarded in Afghanistan by U.S. troops. Don't believe me? Look it up. And so, you know, that that jail is full of white people, man. More so, you know, I would say in, um, the last time I was in there, uh, it was like 80-20. It was pretty much reflective. Most of them dudes was in there for uh drug crimes, uh nonviolent drug crimes or theft. It was some thieves in there and uh my cellmate was a counterfeiter and, and what now you you know. So I you know spent twenty four hours in there after I didn't pay a ticket and got picked up on the street. But I was out I guess it depends on what county you're in. Because I know there's a county in North Carolina that has a, a incarceration rate of hundred and sixty four to one. But there's 164 black people in for every one white person. So I, I guess it depends on where you're at. I'm in Gaston County. Right, I know that. Well, I, I also know... like Is Trump talking about that? Um, just a quick question. Is Trump talking about that? Because I had Trump supporter come on my page. I said, what is Trump's position on mass incarceration, a.k.a. modern slavery? What's his positions on education? What's his positions on, on imperialism and, and all this and that? And, and you know, uh, he was like, those are very valid questions. And so, I mean, come on, man. All Trump is riding on is, is a wave of, of racism, uh, xenophobia, and a lack of understanding of the issues and what and what have you. And, and you know, but the root of it that he, he really plugging into bringing in them new people into the Republican Party. Man, that's these poll, uh, uh, white people that want to be white supremacists. They racist, but they ain't in a supreme position. So they want to be. That's why they support a white supremacist like Donald Trump. He ain't turned down away no endorsement. He's been retweeting white supremacists. Twitter accounts and what have you. So this dude's straight up fascist and feeding and just cause he hiring a couple of Negroes who love butter biscuits and gravy, you know, that is not evidence that he's not a racist. And so, you know, it's just da it's dangerous times we live in. People were saying we live in an exciting time. It's also dangerous times for black people who live in communities of predominantly white people, especially down here with these gun lovers in in the South. And I, that's why I love my guns, too. You heard it? Hey, man, y'all covering it pretty swell. I mean, I think we all, you know, you all obviously in the South, on the East Coast that way. I'm in the middle. But, I mean, you know, the racism is, is everywhere. And I see that the supporters of Trump are basically just as baseless. So, I mean, it's really kind of beneath us in this program and the seriousness that we come with and the study, the you know, the facts and the information that we come with week in, week out. You know, several years in a row, we never had a, a program that could ever be disputed, any of the facts we've ever dropped. So I, I just feel like a person like Trump is really beneath 
you know, even even warranting any kind of commentary. And if he does some kind of way make it in, then he's just going to get ripped to shreds here, you know, like all the rest of these losers have been. we got to keep trying to wake these people up. But, yeah, it's, it's just sad that, that folks, you know, so easily believe in these uh, stereotypes of, you know, folks with their hands out as black folks just sitting around, don't want to work. And, and like Scotty said, you know, in his community, I'm sure Max sees it. I see it here in the Midwest. You know, this is what's going on, man. This is what's happening. It's not just a bunch of black folks sitting around trying to get food stamps and not go get a job somewhere. Like you just heard Dimitri tell you, he was homeless because he lost his job. Like, I don't know what it's going to take. Yeah, I don't know what it's going to take for people to get it through their thick skulls. Like, what are you gaining by telling yourself that all welfare really means is it's a bunch of black folks that just don't want to work somewhere? What? Do you, okay, so what do you get out of believing that? You're definitely not helping your own white brothers and sisters that you could do something to try to help them because they on welfare tough. They out here tough on that welfare, like you just said, living off of food stamps and don't have no kind of income, trying to survive however they can and turning to drugs. But the thing you don't see is hyper-policing. You don't see extrajudicial murders going on when the cops drive past the, the meth house they don't, you know, go in and kick in the door and, and shoot everybody up and snatch out folks and do all this kind of stuff like they terrorize black people. And we're seeing right now Hillary is not able to stand up to, you know, three strikes laws. She's not able to speak on mass incarceration that she was a part of creating and, and receiving the funds to keep it going. So these people can't face the light of the truth. So all we got to do is just keep shining the truth on them. You know, a couple of days ago, I was working on a project, which I'm still working on, called The Incarceration Nation in Black and White. And on it, I had to kind of minimize the information I've gotten from the America is Ferguson series and focus it on just two numbers in conjunction with video presentation and some wonderful spoken word poetry uh, by Jessica, Jessica Patrice Coulter, uh, J9, and also by Blues out of Charlotte. And uh, also by Tamika Staley out of Columbia, South Carolina. It's really powerful stuff. But while I was doing it, one of the things that I had to do over and over again was add up the ratio of black versus white incarceration in comparison to total population. And the one thing that was consistent in every single state was that African-Americans, regardless of how much of the percentage of the population they make, whether it was less than 1% or upwards of uh, 51%, and in the case of the District of Columbia in Washington, were being arrested at 5 to 1, 10 to 1, 12 to 1. In the District of Columbia, where blacks are more populated than whites, I believe it's 51%, they're being arrested and incarcerated at 19 to 1 rates in the District of Columbia. In Vermont, it's 12 to 1. Uh, in California, it was 8 to 1. And on and on. Every single state is like that. It's unexplainable. There's no way you could say this is something that happened because of. There can only be one reason. You're hunting these people on purpose. I mean, how can you possibly, for example, have a state like Colorado, right, where you have only a 4.5% African-American population, and yet... Whites are being ar arrested at a rate per 100,000 of 525, and blacks are 3,491. <laughs> I was like, where did you get these from? So I had to go through that this past week, and I'll be releasing that in the coming days so everybody can see it. 
All right. Are you guys still with me? Yeah, I'm here. As a matter of fact, I was just in here reading. I got uh, some information from a brother, Ken Williams, uh, that is, you know, been kind of sharing some information with me. He's actually involved in some pretty high level legend, uh, uh, lawsuit that we're going to discuss, uh, you know, more offline and then uh, try to get prepared to, to bring him on the program in the future. But he was just reminding me about Trump back in the day running, uh, paying to run ads, uh, you know, against the Central Park Five. Back in the day, yeah, he never apologized. I wrote a long article about that, as a matter of fact. Yeah, so he wanted us to make sure we mentioned that, and then also about uh about the tweets that Trump was putting out um, uh, during the time when they, you know, when once they got that forty million dollar settlement uh, for the wrongful imprisonment and torture and everything else they faced. So you know, again, this is a person that has shown unapologetically, you know, what he's about what he's going to do but again like scotty said he's not going to speak to any kind of any kind of uh issues or anything and really i think that you know if we just got to go somewhat political on the program and i know we got to wrap it up uh that's something i noticed about all of them you know we shouldn't expect it to be any different than it was with obama you know obama was voted in basically by black folks and white folks because he was black he didn't have any kind of evidence of being able to pass legislation, of being able to work with both sides of, you know, the, the, the aisle to get things done. He didn't show any kind of evidence of having any of those kind of connections or anything. But people put him in for that reason. And I think this is kind of the backlash after eight years of that, uh, that Trump doesn't have to show any kind of signs of anything. And I think that there's a lot of uh, whites that are likely to vote for him just because he's the white man in the in the race you know i, I don't know uh hillary clinton herself she doesn't have any evidence of being able to pass anything so we, we're looking at if whoever gets in is probably going to be another uh administration full of executive orders uh of continuing the war machine you know and continuing the, the police uh, the police brutality cases that have been going on because that's the way they round up and snatch up slaves just like they did in the 1600s they're still doing it now, and they're going to keep that uh, prison machine going until the abolitionists, like Max says, reach critical mass. And the people, you know what? We ain't taking it no more. Hey, man. Well, like you said also, brother, we're running short on time down to our past yeah. our last 15 minutes, and we still got our two segments to do. I know we wanted to talk a little bit about the programs that have been released, uh, uh, the Underground, for instance, the TV show, which is coming on right after New Abolitionist Radio tonight, as a matter of fact. Uh, and also 60 Days In, where a group of people go and infiltrate a jail working with the sheriff there. And uh, just about nobody except the filming crew knows that they're innocent. And they film every step of the way what happens to them in one of the worst jails in America, Clark County. Uh, so these are two groundbreaking things. The Underground, I believe, is groundbreaking because of the portrayal of these escaped slaves on the Underground Railroad during the time of Dred Scott and William Still. And they portray them as action heroes. And I think that's really important to change the narrative of, uh, you know, we weren't these people that we've been seeing in media over and over again. These people were hero heroic. They're literally, we read about them here every week. <laughs> they were heroic and they didn't have much. They were just like you and I and the next guy. We're just barely trying to make it, but they all knew each other and they were willing to risk life, live, and liberty and donate whatever they had for freedom's sake. Oh. So it's on tonight. If you get a chance, make sure you check it out. It's called Underground and it comes out at 10 p.m. Um, I guess we can move on into our abolition, uh, not our abolitionist profile, but our 21st century 
writer of the Underground Railroad, uh, who this week is Ricky Jackson. And Ricky Jackson just recently had a chance to ask uh, presidential candidate and senator Hillary Clinton about her stance on the death penalty. Uh, I recently released a video yesterday with that in the clip. You can watch it. Uh, I'll give it up on the abolitionist radio as soon as possible. An Ohio man exonerated last fall after nearly four decades in prison for a murder he didn't commit is suing Cleveland police for their role in putting him away. Ricky Jackson, in a federal lawsuit filed Tuesday, names the city and at least eight former officers of their or their estates for his arrest and incarceration following a 1975 Cleveland area slaying. It was the misconduct by the Cleveland police detectives and those working in concert with them that led to Mr. Jackson's wrongful conviction, according to the suit in U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Ohio. Jackson was 18 when he was first locked up and is now 58. With 39 years in prison, he's believed to be to have served the longest time behind bars for someone wrongly incarcerated in the United States. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, he had been sentenced to life after Ohio declared the death penalty unconstitutional in 1978 before reinstating it three years later. Jackson and two other co-defendants who were also wrongly convicted in the case were freed after a key witness, Edward Vernon, recanted his testimony two years ago, claiming the trio shot and robbed money order salesman Harold Franks. Vernon, who was 12 years old at the time of the shooting, said he had been coerced by detectives. <laughs> wow. 12 years old. His statement implicating Mr. Jackson was a complete fabrication created by the detectives, the lawsuit alleges. The suit doesn't specify an amount of money damages uh, that Jackson is seeking, but requests a jury trial. He has already received about $1 million of a $2 million compensation award from the Ohio court claims for his wrongful imprisonment. Three of the detectives and one sergeant named in Jackson's lawsuit have died in the years since his arrest. A spokesman for the city of Cleveland told NBC that news that officials aren't commenting on pending litigations. Wow. Salute, brother. Welcome to Freedom. I'm glad I got to see you addressing a presidential candidate out there with the truth. But he said... 40 years in prison, the people who put him there lived their lives, long lives, and died. Wow. And he finally got free. Salute. Salute. Well, well shout out to him, like you said, for, for uh, what he said, you know, to Hillary Clinton there. That was powerful to see that, brother, to know, you know, we reported on his story uh, last year when he got out, and then to see where he's at now. I mean, that just... It, it kind of it moved me, you know, to to see. That's one of the first uh, public appearances that we've seen of of these brothers and sisters. You know, we report on them, but they seem to be so broken down and so. Well, we've had a couple here on as guests, as a matter of fact. Uh-huh. Uh, Brother Moses, for Mo- yeah, um, yeah, Sunday yeah. Moses, mm-hmm. Moses. Yeah, man, it's it's good to see them getting out. Yeah, good to see your freedom. Just a damn shame how long it took and what they had to go through. Even going through it for six months can ruin your life. Imagine going through it for 10 years, 20 years, 40 years. Yeah, man. And innocent all along, living in these horrors that we explain to you every week called prisons. Well, let's move on to our abolitionist and profile. Scotty, if you want to cue up the music, I don't know if you have it already written up or not, but you're hunting, I believe. Uh, if not, you're doing it. 
Yeah, I ha- I have it up. So uh, are we? Did you? Or, I don't think you recorded it. I'll uh. No, I I'll, didn't. Uh, I didn't have on. time today. Yeah, I got you. All right. Well, I'm ready, Scotty. Cue it. <laughs> Our abolitionist and profile tonight is Mila Granson. Mila Granson taught hundreds of students, which were slaves, to read and write with Midnight School. She was actually born Lily Ann Granderson. She was born into slavery, but grew to be a great influence on many young black lives during her lifetime. She existed during a time when enslaved Africans were not allowed to read and write, but Granson grew up in her master's home and was close to his children who taught her how to read and write. When her master died, she was sold to a Mississippi slaveholder and put to work in the cotton fields. But she was soon transferred to work in the main house where she started a midnight school. Mississippi law prohibited the literacy of slaves. Learning and teaching had to be done secretly and at the risk of severe punishment. Granson went on to teach hundreds of slaves how to read and to write between the hours of 11 o'clock p.m. and 2 o'clock a.m. Since whites were not allowed to teach slaves how to read and write, Granson had figured out it was not against the law for other slaves to teach one another. Her classes often consisted of 12 students at a time. Many of Granson's slave students wrote their own passes and headed to Canada for freedom. As a freed woman, Granson was hired as a teacher by the American Missionary Association. Records of the Freedmen's Bank in Natchez indicate that she opened an account there in 1870. She was 54 years old, still teaching, married, and a mother of two. So New Abolitionist Radio salutes our good, good mother, Mila Granson. Salute, man. You know that changed lives. Yeah, man. She was getting it in. Uh-huh. She taught them how to write a pass so they can go on about their business. <laughs> that's what those brothers in Alabama was asking for. They was like, yo, teach us how to start a business. Not mm-hmm. to go out here begging somebody for jobs. I don't care if you teach us how to start a sandwich truck or something, anything, instead of going out here and being subjected to this incredible oppression, knowing you can't win, or the odds are so far against you that maybe it ain't even worth trying. You know, it's a terrible thing, man. But thank God for ordinary people like that back in the day and today, who, as I said before, give whatever they have available for freedom's sake. Right. That's what we got to be at today, man. Instead of being so comfortable and so you know compliant with everything going on, just trying to keep our spot, as Scotty says all the time, trying to get them butter biscuits, trying to get a few extra crumbs, a few extra rations, trying to get a title, some notoriety, a little fame, some some tokens and trinkets, and getting all this mess, we need to be trying to get free. Yeah, and not just for us, because we're like the Northerners, you know what I mean? But we're the Solomon Northrop's who know what's going on and are acting accordingly. But we are certainly not in a cage. We're uh, out here operating freely, speaking freely in a uh, nation that oppresses us where slavery does exist. And you can find those people in cages by the millions. Uh, Just over the next decade, we'll see 130 million bodies go through our jail systems alone. Just the jails. 130 million will pass through that system. And uh, in a decade, we'll have... uh, 2.4 2.4 million times 10, 24 million people going in and out or returning to prisons. I mean, what yeah. does it take? How many numbers do you need? God. Seems like people are uh, have already agreed that, that it's just a part of our society. People don't remember uh, 
a time when mass incarceration uh, was not the norm, just like they don't remember getting up and turning the knob to change the channel on the TV. You know, they, they don't remember uh, these, these other things. Everything is so, so about convenience and just move on and just worry about your own and don't worry about what's going on. And, and it's, it's, it's a part of the social order now. So we got to wake yeah. up. When I watched Underground uh, tonight with Tavis Brunson, who was here, a former guest, as a matter of fact, you guys might remember him, I don't know. But uh, in any case, when we were watching Underground, they were saying some quotes. It's full of one lines. I think you guys will like it. And uh, one of the things they were saying is, uh, it don't matter where you sleep, you're still a slave. <laughs> they were talking about the house slaves and the field slaves, and they were talking to each other. And one girl said, it doesn't matter where you sleep, you're still a slave. So if you're subject to slavery at any time, you're still a slave. When, the, when they come calling, you gonna go. Right. Well, we're at the end of our program. Last couple minutes, final statements. Uh, anybody want to start it out? Go ahead, Johanna. I'll make it brief. Uh, I just again, I just appreciate you fellas. I appreciate this movement. Uh, you know, to, I just got to say it today. We don't know if tomorrow, you know, is even coming. So I just got to tell you all I love you. I appreciate the work you're putting in and to all of the abolitionists out there that, you know, we've met over the years, people that are out here in the fight, all the people that have been converted, all the political uh, players that's getting in the game, people writing books, people that's giving speeches, people going to churches, people going to their job, you know, getting it in out here in the in the real world. I, I just I love and I appreciate all of you because I know what it is that you're doing and you don't even have to do it. You could just go along to get along like the rest of these people and just never make a mark on this world. But we're going to make a mark on this world with abolitionists. So peace to the abolitionists, death to the oppressors. Amen. Most certainly. Um, again, I just want to. Uh, Tell all the abolitionist candidates that's uh, participating in politics, which is a people activity area, you know, need fuller defined nine areas, but uh, politi politics control all areas of people activity on the planet. It is through legislatures uh, that laws are put into place, and then the rest of the public is sold, sold on these policies and accepting these policies like Johanna was saying you know there hasn't been a time where you always know that bad people belong in prison you know what I'm saying that's how they're portrayed in the TV shows and on the movies and only bad people are, are behind uh, prison but once you understand the legislative process and how everything is codified just like how what people call racism white supremacy was codified by the Virginia slave codes of 1705 and while you know they uh, have uh, have uh, cleansed their codification now or refined their codification where it's not ri uh, race specific language being used it's still you know, uh, race specific targeted, you know, non, you know, mostly melanated people. And then on a, on a smaller percentage of people targeted based off of their social economic condition, jobless people. And, but, you know, we blame them. And, um, so anytime you got somebody or you can get somebody as a legislature into that process to, if it doesn't do nothing else, but use it as a bull, a pulpit or, uh, what do they what do they call it? The bully pulpit and just educating people from that. You may not even change the system. So you know whether or not 
you know, uh, Bernie Sanders wins or whatnot, a whole lot of people uh, have been woken up to the fact that private prisons are wrong. And while I know she's lying, you even have Hillary Clinton on record, not once, not twice, but saying she'll end private prisons. So uh, just want to wish uh, Mr. Dimitri Cherney uh, good luck as he runs for uh, the U.S. Congress in the 1st Congressional District in South Carolina as he takes on South Carolina's former governor, Mark Sanford. So peace to like I'm I'm stealing it from you, uh, Johanna, because I don't think you <laughs> mentioned it because you went first. But peace to the abolitionists and death to the oppressor. Uh, I'm when I get off of here, I'm gonna go watch Underground. Uh, it's on WGN America, and it starts at ten o'clock. I uh, suggest it. You know, if you're within listening, check it out. It's something different. And uh, I guess I'll end it since we're out of time with the most simple thing of all. Remember. Abolition is the reason for a revolution, so we can finally know peace. Peace. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. 